Welcome to the CKNW Weekend Morning Show podcast. I'm your Saturday host, Sterling Fox, and today, businessman and triathlete Don Conance talks about living with prostate cancer and why men need to get past their reluctance to get a checkup. Money After Graduation founder Bridget Casey has a look at renting versus buying, the young home buyer's conundrum. And infectious disease physician Dr. Jennifer Grant looks at the measures we used to combat COVID and says we need to change course for the better. So let's get started. September is Prostate Cancer Awareness Month, rather, and one in eight Canadian men can be expected to be diagnosed with the disease in their lifetime, according to the folks at the Canadian Cancer Society. That means in this year alone, 24,000 Canadian men will hear the words, you have prostate cancer. Those uh, words were uh, spoken to our next guest, Don Conance, uh, who is uh, at the airport uh, waiting for a, uh, to jump on a plane. Mr. Conance is a triathlete. He is a pr- prostate cancer survivor, and he's here to talk a little bit about Prostate Cancer Awareness Month. Don Conance, good morning and welcome, sir. Thank you so much for having me, Sterling. Uh, you found out at 48, and, uh, and, and just by way of a background, you are a triathlete, your wife is a dietitian. you led, to, to say the very least, an extremely healthy lifestyle, non-smoker, outdoorsy guy, all the stuff. I mean, the perfect uh, uh, recipe for a, a clean, healthy life, and out of the blue, at 48, uh, somebody says to you, you have prostate cancer. How did that go? Well, Sterling, among your viewers are some probably some friends of mine, and I, I, I would I wouldn't consider myself leading a perfect lifestyle, okay, <laughs> but I was leading a very good lifestyle. Okay, okay? healthy then, healthy. And, uh, and 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 the reality is, Sterling, that um, one in two British Columbians are going to hear the words "you have cancer" in their lifetime. Prostate cancer is a particular concern, um, but cancer generally is a very serious menace and for me at age 48 um this was this was not a midlife crisis this was a complete life crisis absolutely so now what uh, uh what was the uh therapeutic approach once you found out that the diagnosis was what it is what was the uh, what was the remedy what what kind of uh, program did you go into don well, this is really interesting because in Vancouver, we have the largest concentration now of prostate cancer science in the world. So I didn't know that before my, my storm started, but I can tell you that there is a lot of really good competency in our midst um, around this particular disease, and I was able to um, get and intersect with these people and and uh, and fall into their care and that was um, I consider that one of the greatest uh, lucky moments of my life and that lucky moment was driven by the fact that we have lots of people that um, donate um, help mm-hmm. and and advance our cancer understanding um, and this is something that is really um super super important don when you when you were diagnosed i guess it's all about at at what stage one is diagnosed with cancer because the earlier the detection and diagnosis the earlier or the better the prognosis for uh treatment and survival so obviously you you've survived we're having this conversation this morning what sort of treatment did you have to to do the chemotherapy or what specifically did they put you through 
So my particular cancer um, affected me at age 48. And as a young man, uh, we typically see a more aggressive type of cancer than we do in older men who die with cancer, not of cancer. Mm-hmm. And so for me, surgery was, was immediate right off the bat. I was home recovering from surgery within 30 days of my diagnosis. Wow. Okay, this was an incredible turnaround. Um, then from there, I, I got onto a series of drugs. The pathology was not good. The margins were not good. It had spread outside the prostate, which is typical of advanced prostate cancer. And so I went on a drug protocol, a whole series of those, and, um, and I underwent. Um, now I've, I've gone through two uh, batches of, of um, fairly serious radiation um, and um, all of these are performance diminishing. Sterling, I'll say that. Well, I, I imagine now you know, hear you hear horror stories in terms of uh, chemotherapy, for example, and just the 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 effects it has uh, on on the constitution. It's pretty tough stuff, uh, and and the other therapies related would I assume be equally rigorous, right, Don? Yes, absolutely. This is um, the, these are tough treatments. And um, I, I do enjoy the side effects, Sterling, because I know I'm getting the effect. Right. Okay. And uh, this is super, you know, this is great that, that this is working. And I'm now in year 12, Sterling, of being alive with this. I'm still swimming along with it. Um, I wake up every day with this black bird sitting on my shoulder. And, uh, and it's something that I have to work and manage. And, uh, and my doctor team has been fantastic. Um, so, yeah. Uh, yeah, it's also um, in terms of the way you handle this. For example, I was reading the story about you in the in the Vancouver Sun the other day, Don, and you don't call yourself a cancer survivor. You like to think of yourself as a swimmer. Tell us why. Well, I, 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 I for me, the experience was like being tossed over a boat, and um, and people are standing on the boat and they're they're. They've spotted me out in the water, and they're throwing me life jackets, and I'm trying to tread and get up, up my head above the water. And um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a lonely experience, Sterling, having, um, having cancer. It's something that is um, incredibly personal. And, you know, for, for a lot of cancers, they don't hurt, but the emotional toll and the rigor on one's soul is very, very difficult. There, there, of course, there's a... As I mentioned before, there's a lot of serious performance diminishing aspects sure. to this. Mm-hmm. But swimming to me really more captures it than a survivor. I'm still on all these drugs. I'm still going to see my doctor uh, regularly, like every couple of months. I'm doing testing and all kinds of CTs, and I've been through a couple of clinical trials. Um, I'm I'm you know working hard to keep this at bay, and so far so good. You talked about out of the water yet. Yeah, you talked about the quality of care available here in Metro Vancouver, and uh, some of the best prostate cancer researchers on the planet are local, and that's uh, a huge plus. Don, I want to talk for a very brief moment or two about seeing your doctor. You've said I see my doctor regularly, every couple of months, and you've referred to the quality of care you've been receiving gratefully. There is, however, being a guy, you would understand there's this sort of innate male reluctance to go to doctors and say. I need a checkup. I'm worried, um, et cetera, et cetera. Guys have this thing about doctors and tests, and they got to get past that. And no better time to do it than uh, during a, a prostate cancer awareness month, right? 
Absolutely. You know, behind every 60-year-old man dying of prostate cancer is a 50-year-old man who could have been cured by simple tests. It's not complicated, okay? It involves a digital rectal exam, okay? This isn't fun. It's not great, but it's important. And it also involves a PSA test, okay? And PSA is the lens through which my team, my medical team, looks at my disease progression. So while there are some controversies around PSA, the issue is not the test, it's the responsible use of the data. Sure. And it's really important that men are seeking this stuff out and that we find cancer before it finds us. Don, well said. And of course, it's the weekend of the Terry Fox run for those who need to be reminded of cancer in our midst and what people are trying to do about it. You have a plane to catch, and I understand you're taking off in four minutes. So thanks ever so much for doing this with us this morning, Don, and bon voyage. Sterling, thank you so much for having me. All the best to you and your listeners. Here's a quote from an article I picked off the Globe and Mail the other day. We're now in a full-blown housing crisis, and no one who isn't living in a paid-off house will escape unscathed. But how can young Canadians make a decision to rent or buy when both choices look so bad? The answer has as much to do with your lifestyle as it does with finances. This uh, under an article entitled Rent or Buy in Canada's Broken Housing Market, the real choice is between freedom or stability. The author of the piece is Bridget Casey, personal finance columnist and founder of Money After Graduation. Bridget joining us this morning from Edmonton. Good morning and welcome back, Bridget. Good morning. Thanks for having me again. Well, it's good to have you back with us. Young Canadians in a real conundrum these days because costs are just out of out of line. Now, we know that housing costs, according to the Canadian Real Estate Association, have come off, Bridget, and are likely to continue declining until sometime mid-next year. This is the latest forecast from the Real Estate Association, of all people. Uh, and typically, they're not into giving negative forecasts, but it's a reality check that a lot of homeowners or would-be homeowners need to know. Prices are still still coming off, but they're still outrageous. So let's talk about the the one or the other, to rent or to buy. Yeah, I think the decision whether to rent or to buy has always been an emotional lifestyle decision, and Canadians really overthink it from a financial perspective. And what has really shifted this year is we've seen rents increase 20 30%, but as rates have been raised by the Bank of Canada, some people, especially those in variable rate mortgages, are seeing their mortgage payments go up by as much as like 40 or 50 percent. Right. So we've entered this scenario where both renting and buying is very expensive. And it actually looks, since we have a few more rate raises coming, uh, probably by the end of this year, that both are going to continue to get more expensive, which makes it a really difficult financial decision. And so at that point, you have to decide, well, which do I really prefer owning or renting which fits my lifestyle, which fits my life plan, and which fits in my overall financial goal. Well, you mentioned the word preference, Bridget, and that's a big one because there's a lot of pressure to um, uh, suppose now your, your preference would be to be a renter. Well, there's a lot of social pressure from family and other sources to, no, no, that's a bad decision. You're, you're paying somebody else's mortgage. You need, to get, you need to get some dirt. You need to get your name on a title. Uh, <laughs> otherwise, you're, you're an incomplete person. There's a, there's a culture of home ownership in Canada that creates a lot of pressure, perhaps unnecessarily, on younger Canadians. 
Yeah, I think it is unnecessary pressure, though I don't find it surprising because the parents of many of these millennials and Gen Z, the boomers really saw their homes appreciate in value over the past, say, 30, 40 years Mm, on their wildest imagination. So, of course, they're like, this is absolutely an excellent investment. You have to do it. But I think what many people are realizing now is so long as you have a mortgage, you are actually a renter. You're simply renting money from the bank instead of renting space from a landlord. But the point of the exercise being after said uh, loan has been paid off, you actually do own some dirt and there, there's, uh, there's the payoff, right? Right. And I think the alternative that we tend to forget and that we should encourage more of is if people choose to be renters, obviously they will not have that uh, equity inside a home. So they have to build equity elsewhere. And there's still good investment opportunities. And while the stock market is down this year, that's actually an excellent time to buy. So yes. if someone's choosing to rent, they're saving money on those costs. Now is an extra time to build up your TFSA, build up your RFP, and that will become your retirement assets later. And it will fully fund paying rent in your old age as opposed to sitting in a paid off house. Yeah, Bridget, you and I have talked about this before. Uh, in Europe, they're, they're a generation or two ahead of us because we're going undergoing in Canada and North America right now. But here in Canada, we're undergoing a generational transformation vis-a-vis housing ownership and stuff. In Europe, it happened a generation or two ago when young Europeans realized how incredibly expensive housing was. And if that was to be the goal of their life, uh, they would spend their whole life paying off a house and a generation or two ago a lot of them just decided life's too short there's so much else to do let's just find a place to rent and get on with life and that generational transfer has been pretty successful in europe do you see it happening here too I mean, I would hope so. Uh, that generational transfer that happened in Europe has actually led to a healthier real estate market than what we see in Canada. There is more rentals available at more price points. In Canada, we're really struggling with a lack of supply yes. in addition to the unaffordability. So that's a challenge for rentals, renters, especially in big city where there is just a limited number of rentals. So I don't foresee it changing anytime soon. Unfortunately, I do think this will take a few years to sort out until we actually have enough homes to house all Canadians. How intimidating is this, the prospect of uh, not only interest rate bumps that we've just gone through, but likely more of same, perhaps to the same extreme uh, going forward? How intimidating is that? I mean, I think buyers that are already in a mortgage find it really overwhelming. Those that don't have a home yet they're kind of watching both sides the interest rates are going up which impacts your affordability but those interest rates also exert negative pressure on home prices so we will see home prices come down and as those come down even if your interest rate is higher uh, your down payment goes a lot further so i would say if those are if there are aspiring homeowners in the market and they're currently renting there's nothing wrong with even renting for the next year, two years, or three years, building up that down payment, watching where interest rates either settle or maybe come down after they're, after they're raised a few more times, and entering the market at a healthier time that fits both where your finances are and your lifestyle. Right, let those prices keep coming down to you. What about rent to own? It's not a very wide uh, practice, but it's becoming more so. Is there an advantage in that? I don't think so. I haven't looked at what's being offered yet in detail, but um, I don't I don't think it's a good option. I think it's the worst of both worlds, to be honest. So you'd rather take that money and invest it in the stock market, particularly at times right now uh, where prices are pretty attractive. 
Yes, absolutely. So in terms of the, the big decision, though, there, again, it's, it's responding to pressure. Not only are you trying to map out some kind of life, and you talk about this, the choice has as much to do with your lifestyle as it does with your finances. So in mapping out that life plan, uh, resisting pressure is, is a big part of it, especially in the early phases, isn't it? Yeah, it's a really difficult thing to do. And as you know, I just became a homeowner this year and I'm 36 years old. And I'm actually really glad that I waited so long because it allowed me to finish like my graduate degree in another city. I was able to move to another city for a job. And I had a lot of flexibility because the greatest penalty of up and leaving for an opportunity was simply to break a lease. Sure. Once I had my child and I knew I would be staying in one place and I wasn't traveling as much, I wasn't chasing job opportunities across the country, then it made a lot more sense for me to buy. And I think young people have to realize that, especially in their 20s, Uh, you're still figuring out your life. You might end up working or living in a different city. You might move for a job. You might move for a partner. And so it's not necessarily a good time to jump into a very expensive asset that ties you down for years. It's better to rent and kind of see where your life plays out and then decide where you want to settle down and buy at that time. So I think we really, again, have to resist the pressure from older generations who settled down a lot earlier in their life and to say, hey, I'm taking the time to build my career, build my relationships and decide where I want to live and what kind of lifestyle I want to live as well. Interesting stuff and great advice too. Lots more at Bridget's excellent website, Money After Graduation. Bridget Casey, thanks so much. Great to have you back. We must do this again soon. Yeah, of course, I would love to. Here's a, a selection, a little clip from an article that we picked off in the National Post the other day. Almost two years ago, quote, almost two years ago, community measures, including lockdowns to suppress COVID transmission, had widespread support with a movement, COVID zero, that promoted more draconian measures, hoping to eliminate COVID altogether. Schools, institutions of higher learning and businesses were shuttered. Even playgrounds and outdoor washrooms were closed and youths simply enjoying outdoor summer parties were vilified. Most of these measures were ineffective. Many were harmful. Has anything been learned from these mistakes? Or will they be repeated the next time case counts go up? We have some thoughts for the future. This under the title, Draconian COVID Measures Were a Mistake. Let's not repeat them. It's time to accept the virus cannot be stopped and will continue to evolve co-authored by four doctors, one of whom is our guest this morning, Dr. Jennifer Grant, joining us here in Vancouver. She is an infectious disease physician, an associate professor of medicine at UBC, and a former guest on our show. Dr. Grant, good morning and welcome back. Good morning, and thanks for having me again. Well, it's good to have you, Dr. Grant. Uh, this uh, we, we are uh, bound and determined to learn better lessons from the, from the past and apply them to the future. How, um, how, how ready do you think is the, the uh, health policy commit community to accept some of the recommendations you and your colleagues make in this uh, article in the National Post the other day? I'd like to think that people are actually quite ready. I've had a lot of very positive feedback from this article, as have my co-authors. I think people realize how important it is not to blame anybody for any decisions they made, but really to sit down and, and think carefully through what we did, what we possibly shouldn't have done, and what we can do better next time. 
Right. Well, of course, and, and this whole notion of um, vilifying people for making a decision turned into an election issue. The prime minister and his party basically vilifying the unvaccinated and uh, pr- producing some pretty harmful uh, results in a population that is still in many ways seething with resentment. And that's not healthy either, is it? It isn't. And I think this should go back to our days of dealing with other viruses. During the early days of HIV, um, there was vilification of the gay community. Yes. And we learned a lot from that in that uh, the, the, the tagline from that was it's a virus, not a moral issue. And we really do have to recognize how um, some people are going to react differently than others. And I do want to point out that a lot of the people, um, there's a disparity in terms of vaccination rates with um, minority communities having less vaccination. And that's because, with very good reason, they've lost trust in the medical system for all sorts of horrible things that have been done in the past. Right. And, and, and so vilification is actually quite harmful to trying to recover those issues. Um, and and it, as you said, it creates even resentment and it makes it very, very hard the next time to have a rational conversation and make people understand that in many ways, we are really trying to do the best um, that we can. It's interesting. You, you talked about uh, the, some of the measures that we took um, out of fear and uh, lack of any kind of uh, alternatives. We decided we were just going to lock everybody down for a few months and take it from there. How uh, how incorrect was that decision based on hindsight being 2020? You know, it's really hard to say. And I think this is where we really need everybody to just take a deep breath. And and what we really need is our experts in statistics and and math um, to come up with a plan to analyze this dispassionately. Not everyone has their biases, and that's the problem. We're getting one group of uh, people with one bias saying these measures were the only thing we could possibly have done. They were fabulous. We should do them every time. Right. And other saying the exact opposite. And the truth is, the truth is probably somewhere in the middle. And we need to really look at that in a scientific way with emotions and politics taken out. I think where a lot of it's interesting you would bring up science because science was always we're following the science. That was the quote used by most politicians over those particularly the first 12 months of COVID and dealing with all of the inconveniences to put it mildly that Canadians were subjected to. We're following the science but then as people started to pay more and more attention Dr. Grant it turns out some of the science they were following was political science instead of medical science and that caused a little bit of skepticism at a very unhealthy time. Absolutely. And I I think that it was very much a mistake to call this following the science. And here's why. Science will tell you what the rate of hospitalization is. It will tell you how many people are likely to die and in what age groups. That's the science. But what we do in terms of policy actually is values, applying values to science. So so with the exact same facts, two very reasonable people coming with different values will come to two very different conclusions. And not acknowledging that is a really important problem that we faced and that some people would say we should lock down because any risk is unacceptable. Others would say risk is part of life. 
So let's talk a little bit about the fear factor, because right from the get-go, we were told to be afraid. This is something that is new. Uh, We've not seen anything like it. was a global pandemic. Uh, Countries around the planet were taking similar measures. Everybody was uh, a little, to say the nonplussed would be a a kind way of describing confusion. And a lot of fear was instilled in the general population to the point where this morning, Dr. Grant, there are still people listening to this broadcast who won't go to a restaurant because they're still afraid. Right. And that's a really challenging um, issue. The the, the problem um, with fear is that it's very hard to undo. And and I do have to say um, there were the the pushing of fear was a very interesting phenomenon. And um, a lot of social media and media outlets found that that was a great way to get eyeballs. Um, And I think we all have to take collective responsibility in saying that fear is probably not the best motivator Mm -hmm. and that we should have calm, collected, and responsible um, reporting on issues where people may panic and make poor decisions because of that panic. Right. Testing. How how useful has the testing process been uh, throughout the pandemic? And going forward, is it a reliable uh, metric to, to depend on? So right now, testing is probably no longer a reliable metric. Early in the pandemic, it was probably very important. We really did need to understand who was infected, who wasn't. And that helped us understand who was getting sick or very sick, sick enough to need hospital and who wasn't. Sure. With the Omicron variant, um, about 60% of people, um, if not more, are unaware that they're infected. They're just the, the, the disease is mild enough that you wouldn't even know you had it. So testing stops being as useful. And really, as this virus becomes something that we're going to deal with year over year, we really need to start treating it like all of the other viruses in that if you're sick, stay home. But we're not going to worry about whether it's coronavirus or influenza or human metanumavirus. Um, it is what it is. And unless you get very sick, we don't really need to know what's causing it. And we can use other measures like wastewater to understand what's going on epidemiologically. Interesting. Now, let's talk a little bit about boosters, Dr. Grant, because now uh, there's a big push by the British Columbia government, for example, to get more people boosted up this fall. It's a big push this fall. Uh, they talk in terms of getting perhaps more than one booster shot per year. Uh, that seems to be a little excessive, according to the article you and your colleagues wrote. Right. So this is something where the science itself isn't settled. We really don't have great data on when boosters do and don't help. We know that there's a group of people who are at very high risk, and those are people who almost certainly do benefit from boosters. So um, those people who are severely immune suppressed, the frail elderly, other people, unfortunately, um, in order to get these uh, vaccines out quickly, we don't have a lot of clinical data. So we're going to really need to look at those data as they come out and, and make uh, rational decisions about what to do. For those people who have questions, I strongly recommend you speak to your personal physician to try and get an idea of where you sit in that um, Benefit and apply your values to your decisions about boosters. Uh, you talk uh, very briefly uh, about ArriveCan, saying in, in one sentence, ArriveCan is an international embarrassment and Canada can do better. Not a lot about public health going on with that one. It's now about control and surveillance, uh, but it, we're still being, it's still being fobbed off as some kind of public health thing. Well, if it is a public health thing, they have not made any of the data public. 
So if there is public health value, then I think it behooves the federal government to show us the data that have been generated and how that's been used to improve outcomes. To date, and I have looked, none of those data are available. Um, so, again, I, I put it to the federal government to prove that there's some benefit to, to that app. Dr. Grant, final question, June. It's great to have you back on the show, ma'am. As we go forward uh, with the politicians leading the parade, as usual, how confident, if at all, are you that those uh, mistakes, as you read them uh, from the first round, won't be repeated? Well, I, I hate to be cynical, but unless we um, really take the time as a scientific community to sit down and do the analysis that we need. There's no incentive for politicians to change their approach. So we really need to come together to sort of take the, um, the, the creed of accepting what we can't change and changing what we can and really look at what we have done and dispassionately and fairly come up with a a postmortem on what's happened. Interesting stuff. Dr. Jennifer Grant, great to have you back on the show today. We do appreciate your time again. (laughs) Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or listen to us live six to nine weekend mornings. I'm Sterling Fox. Have a great week. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.